0: We are uh, still in Genesis, and uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one. As as I've said right from the beginning of this series, um, it is it's my intention and anybody else that is participating in, in bringing the sermons on Genesis. It's our intention to hold fast to what Scripture says. We recognize that, that in many ways um, science has been hijacked by atheists. That, that it is their desire to, to use their interpretation of the evidence that is in our universe, in our world, in order to establish and prove that there is no God. Um, and, and in many ways, they have, uh, they have captured the hearts and the minds of many, uh, of our culture in so many different ways. And, and in fact, there are, there are many who... In, in, in an attempt to try and align themselves with, with that scientific, that modern, that, that proper understanding of our universe. Take that information and try and, and, and make the Bible fit in with that interpretation that there is no God. Why would you ever want to try and, and align yourself, or, or, or maybe better, align the Bible with a worldview that says that there is no God? Now, now that doesn't mean that everything that science comes up with is wrong, is inaccurate, is, is, is a lie or a deception in some way. And so, as, as we're going through Genesis, as we're looking at all of these different passages, we... We want to do so both with the Bible open, that that is our final authority, but then also with eyes that observe the world around us and try and determine how the evidence that we see in the things around us lines up with what Scripture has to say. There have been, over the history of the world, lots of different ways that people have tried to explain what we see around us. They've created different cosmologies through different cultures, uh, through different religious views, uh, that they have have tried to explain why things are the way that they are. And and ultimately, any worldview has to come to that point. It has to be able to, to understand or answer the question, why is there something instead of nothing and and there are different cultures uh, throughout time that have tried to look at our world our earth and try and use or, or come up with a, a frame of reference that that helps understand what we see around us so this is a sumerian com- co- cosmology this is out of babylon uh, some an artist representation of, of what they understood to be happening here. And here we see the earth, uh, we see the, the, the sea, uh, the oceans around the earth, the fresh water that, that supplies all of our water for drinking and everything. And there are these domes over the earth, different levels of, of the heavens, uh, that that contain different aspects. There's the heavens of the constellations. There's the heavens of the younger gods. There's heaven of the elder gods, and so on and so forth. And and as people were looking at what they saw around them, they were trying to describe and understand how that came to be, and they they created these different myths. And 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 often their worldview was tied in with their religious views. And so, when you look at the what's the name of it, the the Enuma Elish, I think is how you pronounce it. it. It's kind of the the creation story of the Babylonians of the Sumerians, and it talks about how you know there was all kinds of um, uh, infidelity amongst some of the early gods, and, and they were uh, uh, angry with each other, and 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 came to this great battle between Marduk and and his. Uh, I think it was his mother, the goddess Tiamat. Um, and he was able to, with the support of the other gods that he had, had aligned with, he was able to defeat her. And, and in that defeat, he cut her body in half and, and with the lower half he was able to fashion the earth and out of the upper half he was created the sky this dome that protected the earth uh, from, from all the things that would happen and that's kind of what we see going on here. The, the Egyptian cosmology is, is similar similar kind of a thing where there's gods that, that look after particular areas that they um, establish themselves and, and, and again it's, it's Partly out of, the, uh, out of their, their understanding of, of the gods and, and, and the worldview that they had created, the religious view that they had created, but also um, out of what they had observed around them. And you, you can understand how, when you look at the sky, it looks like this big dome that's covering over top of us and adding some protection. Um, this is, this is uh, uh, from the Greek... Uh, not quite so ancient. This is Ptolemy, which would have been in the 1st or 2nd century B.C. Um, and, and here we have the earth, a, a, a globe at the center with all of these paths, um, these, these paths that the gods were following. And the gods were all the planets and the heavenly bodies. So there's, uh, there's a path there for Mercury. There's a path... For Venus, there's a path for the Sun, uh, there's a path for Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. And, and again, being able to look into the heavens and they see the movement of all of these stars, and they're trying to explain what they're seeing and help that fit in with their worldview, their, their religious views about who all the gods, gods were and how they were interacting with their life. And I'm sure there was a, a sharing between all of those different things, some of what they were seeing. Was shaping the, their religious views of how they understood the gods to be working. If we look at what is likely um, uh, an, an ancient Hebrew understanding of of the earth, you can still see some similarities, right? There still is this dome, this firmament, the 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 rakia that's covering the earth. There's the, the waters above the, uh, the, the rachia, uh, um, the waters below that, that, that circle the earth. And, and this, is, this is probably a, a pretty good. We don't actually have any pictures of anything, but, but this is what we understand from some of the rabbinical writings and stuff, is this is how they were understanding the, the world at different points in the, in the past of the of the of the Hebrew people the question is did they get this from reading the Bible from the revelation that God had given to Moses and and to to others did they pull it out of that or was it also part of the influence you you look at some of these others that these other uh, kingdoms that they were under, whether it would be the Egyptian, they, they existed for many years under the Egyptian, there's the, the Babylonian when they were in the Babylonian exile, the, the, the influence that that might have been, also the, the Greek influence certainly had a big impact um, on the shaping of, of, their, of their understanding. But, but, but if we read the Bible, is, is this what the Bible describes for us? And there are folks today, many folks, that would say, actually, yeah, if we read the Bible, this is what the Bible describes. Today, the passage that we're going to be looking at talks about a little bit of all of this. So it gives us a chance to be able to try and understand should we jettison. The modern scientific understanding of the, the solar system with the sun at the center and the earth orbiting around it, that the earth is in a globe, that, that there is an atmosphere that, that covers the earth, or should we be leave all that and say this is what the Bible says and go with what the Bible says. I am intent on going with what the Bible says. So let's see what it says. Turn with me into Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 6 to 8 this morning. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. God, as we come to your word here this morning, it is with humility and a desire to understand Your truth. So I pray that that as we look at this passage, that Your Spirit would help guide our thoughts, guide the words that are being spoken, so that in everything that we do, we would reflect Your truth and bring honor and glory to Your name. Amen. The key word in this passage is "raqia." Uh, there are some translations like the ESV, like what I'm reading from today, that, that would translate that expanse. Uh, the King James and, and others similar to that use the term firmament. Um, there's actually one uh, uh, translation that I found, a version of the Bible. It's called the, the Bible in Basic English that actually translates rakia as dome. They're going all in whole, whole, whole hog with this idea that there is a crystal-like dome that covers the earth that is uh, protecting the earth and, and in which, as we're going to read later on, we're not going to get to it today, but it's in that rakia that the Lord places the heavenly bodies, the stars and the planets, both the sun and the moon. All of that is in this, that separates the waters above from the waters below. And and at first glance, you can kind of see this, right? It it seems to be describing something like this. And I can totally understand in a a time and an age where I don't trust anybody anymore. (laughs) Anybody that's claiming to have truth, I am watching them very carefully because, I don't know, I just felt like we have been lied to in so many different ways, right? There's so many different agendas that people are trying to spin us in all kinds of different directions. Uh, so I can understand how people would look at this and they would say, NASA, I, I don't know that I can trust what it is that you have to say. And so, looking and saying, this is what the Bible presents. In order for us to be able to understand this, we need to understand this word, rikia. What does it mean? How is it used throughout the Old Testament Scriptures? How does this Hebrew word, is, is there any key in the different uses of it that will help us understand a little bit of its structure, a little bit of, of the way that, that, that it functions here in our world? Um, There's not a lot of places that brachia is used. Um, there's a number of spots here in, in the Genesis account where we're going to come upon this uh, term again uh, again and again, whether it will be translated expanse, whether it'll be a translated firmament. Um, even some of those translations kind of give some, some feeling of, of how this word should be understood. Firmament, that sounds firm, doesn't it? Sounds solid. Um, So we we can see it in a number of places through Genesis. It it comes up in Job uh, one time, in Psalms a couple of times in some of David's Psalms, actually in Psalm 19 that, that Paul read for us. Here this morning, it talks about the rakia how, how uh, the rakia is part of that what declares the, the, the goodness of God, the, the, the power and the glory of God. Um, it also comes up in Daniel in, in one of his uh, one of his uh, 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 dreams, in his, his understanding of those dreams. Uh, we read that there in Daniel chapter 12, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, in all of those examples. Rakia is always referring to this expanse or this firmament. Um, so, so it doesn't, and, and it doesn't give us a lot of deeper understanding. It doesn't give any description of what exactly that is. It just talks about the firmament, about the expanse that is up there. Ezekiel uses it in a little bit different context. This is right in, in the, the beginning of Ezekiel where he is describing this uh, this apocalyptic vision that God has given him, this great dream, and, and, and he talks about uh, the, the seraphim with, uh, with eyes all over their wings, with standing on the wheels that are in wheels that are going flaming and going north and south and east and west, and all of this stuff that's really <laughs> trippy to try and figure out what exactly he's talking about. But in that, he talks about how there is an expanse. And he's not talking about the expanse of the sky, but he's talking about there in the presence of God, in the throne of God, that there are these seraphim that have these eyes all over their wings and the wheels and all that kind of stuff, flaming. And above them is the throne. And in between them is this rakia, an expanse. And again, it doesn't really help us because it could be and, and many people, there are some translations that actually, at that point, uh, translate it as a platform, because the, the, the throne of God is up there on the platform and separates the seraphim that are below uh, that are there worshiping and praising God. But it could also be just a space of separation between the seraphim. And the throne, because the throne of God is often described as as on the clouds. It doesn't talk about the solid foundation that it's on. It it's always in the clouds, and so it's not necessarily a solid platform that the throne is on. And that expanse separates the seraphim um, from, or or the yeah the seraphim from uh, from the throne of God. So n- as I've been looking at that. There's, there's nothing looking at the word rakia in its use throughout the Old Testament that helps us distinguish whether this is a solid structure or whether it is a space that separates um, those two. And, and that's kind of the key. Uh, one thing that, that helps us a little bit maybe is um, the, the verb form of this word rakia. The verb form where the, where the root of rakia is from is rakah. And rakah describes the process of spreading or stretching something out. It is used of in, in the description, uh, the, the instructions that, that Moses got from God about the priestly garments. And, and the craftsmen there were taking gold and hammering it out thin into little threads that they would then weave. And, and, and what they were doing is rakah. Is they were stretching out that gold into small thin uh, threads that they could then weave into the priestly garments. Um. Another place where rakah is used, which is actually kind of a helpful spot, is in the the Job passage, uh, because the Job passage here is, this is, um, it's in Job chapter thirty-seven, verse eighteen. If you want to turn to it, you can. We're just going to briefly touch on it, but, but there in that. In that description, Job 37, we know this is God responding to Job's 40 questions, where Job is saying, it's not fair, I don't get it, why is all this stuff happening to me? And he, he lays his, his um, plea before God, um, and then God actually answers him. And God answers him, not by saying, well, this is why I did it. He says, in 40 different questions that God responds back to Job, he's saying, who are you? <laughs> What do you know about the things that I see and the things that I do? And he then starts talking about, do you know who, where the storehouses of snow are held? Are you able to control the Leviathan as he swims through the sea? And all of this stuff to be able to say, Job, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because there are things that are going on that you are just not privy to. That only I am am able to see and able to control. And in all of that response that God is, is sending to Job, he has this one statement. He says, can you, rakah, can you spread out with him, with God, the rakia? the firmament, the expanse, as a molten mirror. So both of those, the verb and the noun, are being used in the same sentence, which kind of helps us. In, 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 and in this context of it being a molten mirror, recognizing that it is a solid, in, in some ways it, there is a, a protective nature to it, but it also is malleable. It, it's something that can be spread out. It can be raka out. Um, it, it provides protection. Um, but it also is molten and it's malleable, and and so it's not necessarily crystalline solid. It's something that provides a a means of protection with some movement and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. There is something in the Genesis passage that does help us, though. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 if you've followed me over to Job. Genesis chapter one verse eight. And God called the Rakia Shamia. I didn't know if I said that right. Heaven. Some of you might have your translation, might be sky. Uh, what, I'm sorry, I forget what is King James, is it heaven? Heaven? Okay. Uh, so so God called the Rakia heaven. So there is a direct correlation, right? Heaven is the same thing as Rakia. Rakia describes what it is. Heaven is the name of what it is. So if we then go through and, and we start looking through the Old Testament Scriptures of, of what exactly heaven, how do we describe heaven? Is there, is there some help there in, in understanding this rakia when we look at the, what, what the Bible has to say about heaven? And it does help us because the heaven is used in, in basically three different ways. Right? There, are, there are passages that talk about heaven as the place where the birds fly. We're going to come to that as we get here later on into uh, day four. Is that right? Day five. That's what I meant to say, day five. Day five is when the, the birds of the heaven, the birds of the Shamiyamim, are created, as well as the fish in the oceans below. Uh, so, so heaven, and it uses that same word Shamiyamim, is both Rakiah, but it is the place where the birds dwell. We're also going to come on to heaven again later on in, in, in a number of places throughout Scripture. Um, specifically in Genesis chapter 15, which is one of the places where we're going to see this, where Abraham or, or God is, is promising Abraham, he's, he's confirming his, his uh, covenant with, with Abraham, and he calls Abraham to look into the Shemimim. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not saying that right. The heavens. And count the stars and, and, and promises that your descendants will be as, as numerous as the stars that are in heaven. So not only does, does heaven, Shemimim, mean that, that, that sky where the birds dwell, but it also is the, the heaven where, where the stars are, where the stars are placed. We're also going to come on it in Genesis chapter 28, when we get there, a long, long way from today, but we will get there. And this is the account of, of Jacob uh, okay. fleeing from his father's tent because he deceived his dad, Isaac, um, and, and he is on his way to go and uh, live with his uncle. And, and in that place where he comes to Bethel and has that sleep and puts his head on the stone and has this dream where heaven opens and there is a ladder that reaches into heaven and the angels are ascending and descending. So uh, reaches into the throne room, into the presence of God, where there is this connection between heaven and earth. Same word is being used. I'm sorry, I'm, not, I'm just brooding this, but anyway. So heaven means sky, it means the place where the, the stars are, but it also means the presence of God. And all three of those are there. So by, by God calling the Rakiah, Shamiamim, heaven, we can know that, that rakia has some of those same kind of um, uh, uh, distinctions. That it can be both a, a place where birds can dwell, where the birds fly, so the sky that we have above us. It can also mean the heavens as in the place where the stars and planets and heavenly bodies uh, have been placed. And, and, and like I said, we're going to get there where God is going to say uh, that He places the stars in the rakia, in that expanse. But he- Theoretically, we can also say that rakia refers to the expanse, the separation that we have between our material self and the spiritual dwelling place of God there in heaven. So that seems to be arguing against this idea of a solid dome because you can't have birds flying through something that is solid. You, you, you don't have birds. It's, it's not all the same exact thing, right? Because you don't have birds, the birds that, that God created that, that here on earth, that they're also flying in the throne room of God. So, so there is some distinction that there, that that Rakia applies to all of those different aspects. And so it, it undermines this idea that there is a solid dome that is covering the earth. Instead, probably a better translation is expanse, this separation, this thing, this, this space that, that is there between us and those things that are above, whether it is the space where the birds dwell or the space where the, the stars are, or the space between us and God there in, in heaven. So what about this idea about separating the waters, that this expanse separates the waters from below from the waters above? It's, this is just Totally, this idea that there are waters outside of that atmosphere, outside of that, that, just doesn't fit at all for any kind of modern understanding of the universe. And, and there, I, I was reading this week, not just this week, I've been looking at this one for a while, but... Um, been reading there's a number of peop- different ways that people have tried to explain what is this water there are those that have suggested that even in the cosmology that that of, of our modern world where the universe is this vastness of space that there is at the outer rim of the universe that we aren't able to see that there is this water these heavenly waters that still exist out there because later on it does talk in in psalms it talks about how the 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 water above the heavens is still present there. Um, and so uh, there, there are some th- other different ways that people have tried to explain that. But if we understand the heavens, the, the shamimim, to have that threefold kind of, of, a, of, a, of a application, a possibility, then it totally fits for us to say that those waters above are the clouds that we have in our atmosphere that are still in the heavens, in that rachia, in that separation apart from us, but not necessarily at the end of the universe. And, and, and this totally makes sense. I mean, even from a very uh, a basic understanding of the world, we know that when the clouds come, that's when the rain comes, right? The, that's where that water source is. And so when, when in later on in Genesis, when it talks about the flood and, and how the... the The windows of heaven were open, and the rain gushed down. We can understand that from uh, the fact of of all of those clouds pouring down rain. The same kind of language is used uh, later on when um, Elijah, uh, first of all, prayed for the drought. And then was able to get support from the king and have some repentance from the king and so then went back up after that drought was done and, and to pray to God and, and ask for the drought to end and, and, and saw the little cloud, you remember that? And he then goes running down the hill because he says the storms are coming and it says that, that the floodgates, the windows of heaven were opened and the rain crashed down and flooded the land uh, with, with all of the, the rain that had been held up for, for years. All of that fits with our understanding of, of the waters in the heavens being those clouds uh, that are up there. Um, so I, for me, I, I don't think that the Bible explicitly or 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 even implicitly or or any is at least teaches that there is a solid dome that the rakia is a solid dome over the earth i think it totally fits for our understanding of the atmosphere that provides protection for us that that has in some ways a solid nature to it right because we know that that meteors as they are flung towards our our atmosphere Because of the great speed that they're at, and once they hit the the atmosphere, they compress that gas and and the air that's in front of them, which creates a tremendous amount of friction, uh, which then causes them to burn up, and and, and only a few actually get through that to be able to, to come and hit the earth. So the atmosphere does provide us some kind of a solid protection against things that would come at us, but it also is penetrable. We're able to see through it. One of the things that I was thinking about was you know, we, we, can, we can explain all of that based on our understanding of things like gravity and, and, and everything else, that, that the air is held in around the atmosphere and, and those places like the moon that doesn't have as much gravity, doesn't have, doesn't have as much mass, and so the gravitational pull, there isn't the atmosphere that would that would surround the, the moon because of gravity. And all those kind of things fit for understanding of this world and, and seems to make sense and, and doesn't, I don't, I don't believe, contradicts what the Bible presents for us. Instead, all it does is... See, I believe that God has presented us with with truth and an understanding and a framework for us to be able to understand our universe and our world around us. But He doesn't give us all of the details. It's not His intent to be able to explain every little aspect of what it is around us. Instead, He does that so it, it, it piques curiosity in us. So we want to know more. So it drives us to explore, to understand, to, to hypothesize, to, to try different ideas, to see how they fly, and to discard those ones that don't work, and then continue to look for other kinds of things. I mean, when, God, when the Bible describes how, how God forms man out of dust, we don't actually believe that, that if you cut us open that dust pours out. No, what that means is, is, is we are made of the same stuff, the same elements as the rest of the world. That, that we are physical and material just like that. But, but, as, we, but as we study more and we're... The, the, <laughs> the amazing complexity of the human body and, and, and even, even the ancients knew the complexity of the human body, but the complexity of the cell. The, 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 the teeny tiny machines that are all at work in the cells that we're only beginning to discover now because we're able to, we have the technology that, that sees stuff at that, at that level. It, it just is mind-blowing. God doesn't say anything in here about DNA. Doesn't say anything in here about cells and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So we don't, reject all that and say, well, it's not in the Bible, so it doesn't fit. No, we, we, we look at the Bible, we, we look at what it says, and then, and then look at our world and try and figure out how this relates to what what is being taught here. And, it, and if we are saying things that go against, that, that are opposed to this, then yeah, we discard them. And we try and, and look even more closely to be able to understand that better. But I don't think there's anything here in this passage that would cause us to have to discard that idea that that we have an atmosphere. That there is space that that is vastly distant. That that contains a mind-boggling amount of other heavenly bodies that are out there. And all of that is given to us as a glorification of God that we would see all of that and go, God, You are Now, there is something missing from this second day. Maybe you've noticed it. We haven't really got enough days. We've only had two days so far uh, for us to be, be really recognize patterns. But, but many of you are familiar with the patterns. There's the morning, there's the evening, the next day. But also one of the patterns that's quite regular throughout these six days of creation is God saw and it was good. You may have noticed I didn't read that. Because here in this second day, it doesn't say that. Trust me, read it. I'm not making this up. God said, Let there be expanse, Mr. Heaven, separate the waters and the waters. God made the expanse, blah, 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 blah. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. What happened? Why is the second day not good? That's a fair question. I don't have any concrete answer because the Bible doesn't tell us that it wasn't good for such and such a reason. But let me speculate here. Next week, we're going to be talking about how God continues his work on the waters below. That he separates the waters from the dry land. we talked about how... The earth, when God first created it, was tohu v'bohu. It was formless and empty. And then the six days is God's process of forming that earth and filling it. Well, at this point here on the second day, the separation from the water below from the separation on the water above, there still is no place for life. There's no place for humanity yet. That's because God's not done yet. It's not done with the water. He still has some more to do before it can be described as good as a place where His chosen people, where His chosen creation, the, the ones who would bear His image, can dwell. I think there's a really good lesson in there for us. Sometimes in my life, Things don't line up with that promise that God gave us. That we read in Romans 8.28 for in all things God works for good for those who love Him who are called according to this purpose. There are a lot of things that happen in my life that I would not characterize as good. But God's not done yet. there's still more work to happen. I've been listening to Mercy Me this week and and this song, uh, what's it called? Better Days Coming. One of the lines in the song says, if it's not good, then it's not over yet. I promise you that this is not the end. You might be going through a time right now in your life that you'd be hard-pressed to classify as good. (laughs) There are better days coming because God's not done yet. If, If it's not good, if there are things that are going on in your life that you're going, I have no idea why this is happening to me right now. Uh, there are financial pressures. There are relational pressures. Uh, there there are, are, are temptation struggles that you're going through. And it's just hard for you to understand how this could be part of God's good plan for you. If it ain't good, then it's not over. He's not done. Continue to hold fast. Look to Him. Keep your eyes focused on that Savior who who has a perfect plan for your life, who will not waste any of the sorrow, of the sadness, of the joys, of the success in your life, that all of that will be worked for His good and for your, uh, sorry, for your good and for His glory. So just keep holding on. Keep looking to Him. Keep trusting in Him. And He who started a good work in you will bring it through to completion. Praise God for His great finishing ability. Let's pray. With your eyes closed, let me just give you an opportunity to do some business with God. Maybe you're one of those ones that, that life is not good. Maybe you know somebody that in your family or in your friends that are going through difficult times. Let me give you a chance just to lay those circumstances and situations at the foot of the cross right now. And in faith, look to God to redeem, to transform. Jesus, I thank you that you are such a good finisher. That you don't leave anything half done. That you bring all of your plans and purposes to completion in your perfect time. Thank you that we can actually see that in creation. That even in those six days... You didn't call something good even though it was just half done. You waited until it was good and then you called it good. Help us to trust you. Help us not to get distracted by the wind and the waves, the things that would pummel us. But instead that we would keep our eyes focused on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And to wait on you until you make it good. Whether that's here on earth or, or once we, we are rejoined with you in heaven. Jesus, we will trust that you will accomplish that good in us and through us. Pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.